it's a challenge making any kind of pronouncement or judgment about the movies of 2023 because there were a lot of them. And of course, impressions about art are subjective. But you do tend to find some kind of consensus when you read the best of lists at the end of the year. So when you throw out the extremes, like those who said it was the best year in decades or those who thought it was mostly garbage, it seems critics thought it was fine. A fine year for movies. Some amazing stuff and some that was just fine. The film and culture historian Andrew Nelson was mostly meh on the year. He told us he noticed a lot of the subjects had potential but couldn't quite get there. To explain it to us, he reached for an analogy. And he found one in Sir Ridley Scott's biopic, Napoleon. Let's see if this works. So there's a scene in the film when Napoleon is in Egypt. And as is typical of the film, we don't get a lot of context, any information. But Napoleon is led to what we take to be the sarcophagus of some pharaoh. And the sarcophagus, you know, is opened for him. And we see the mummy inside. He walks up to it, and then he has to go to the side and get a little box that he stands up on so he can be almost eye to eye with what we assume to be some great ruler, some divinely ordained leader from the past of a great civilization. And so, you know, Napoleon contemplates the face of this mummy, and then he slowly reaches up to touch the face as if he's trying to make a connection with something that he perceives was greatness in the past and that he hopes is in himself. And just as he's about to touch the face, there's this snap, and the head just falls to the side, and he recoils his hand. It's a great moment of understated filmmaking, no dialogue, but I can't help but wonder if that is not somehow emblematic of 2023 at the movies. The idea that we're trying to <laughs> put ourselves eye to eye with these greats of the past, and we're reaching for them, but at the moment we're about to touch them, they recoil from our presence. I'm excited that Hollywood is still interested in making films about important moments in the past, like Napoleon, like Oppenheimer, even a film like Air. That's happening alongside our desire to use cinema to explore, you know, speculative futures or alternative presence. I am interested to see how certain franchises will continue to evolve because we have some fatigue. I'd be interested to see what happens next for Mission Impossible, what happens next for Fast and Furious. I hope we don't see Indiana Jones ever again. You know, Marvel, I, I mean, I could take it or leave it at this particular yeah. point. But the nice thing about comic books, especially if you take them back to their origins, is that you can reboot these. You can start over. I think there's going to be some attempts at that. I was sad at the end of John Wick 4. Mm. You know, spoiler alert, he dies. It was a really moving moment, actually, to see this action hero finally pass away. You know, not sacrificing himself to save the universe, but just dying for a cause that he believes in, you know, finally succumbing to, you know, what are a number of very, very challenging weeks in his uh, professional life. So, you know, I, I suppose in a way, as much as this year wasn't great, in almost every instance, there was something really exciting that signals tremendous possibility. And we can have a conversation next year or 
a couple years' time to see if all of that potential was realized. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Andrew Nelson is with us for the show today. He's the head of the film department at the University of Utah. We're talking about the movies of last year. Now, prepare to be surprised by Nelson's own favorites or least favorites. As we said, this stuff is subjective. But he did have some insights on trends and themes he was detecting in the culture of the moment. When Nelson added it all up, this is what he thought about the quality of the movies in 2023. Not great. Yeah. Is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, but n- not great in an interesting way. I think we saw a number of very high profile failures this year. Hmm. And I think because there were so many high profile failures, it made some other films seem better hmm. than they might have been. That they, for whatever reason, you know, compelled people to go and see them, but also got critics excited about them because they weren't terrible. But over time, I'm going to guess that some of the, this movie's big, big films will be largely forgotten. And there will be some hidden gems, as there are every year, that will rise to the top over time. Explain what you mean by, like, not great. Um, is, it ju- is that just – which we'll probably be sort of talking about anyway. Is this like a subjective opinion or are you also using um, – some kind of measure here. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I like, do. Like, oh, I, I didn't like the movies of 2023, but you, you, you're a scholar of film, so right. that, that holds more weight. And yeah. so when you say, not great, yeah. what do you mean? Well, one important thing to point out is that in pretty much any year, most of the movies will be bad. Most of the movies mm. will get poor reviews. A yeah. lot of them won't make money. Yeah. The way the system operates and the way it's operated for a long time is studios rely on a few big hits to keep the ship afloat, so yeah. to speak. And there's diversified revenue streams. There's foreign releases and so on. But that general idea still holds. You know, I'm sometimes asked uh, when I teach classes on older movies and you know, we're watching all of these classic films from the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. You know, I'll sometimes have a student – or you know, one of my continuing education students say, you know, how is it that they made so many great movies at this time? It, it just seems like every year there were dozens of these class, now classic films. And I have to tell them that you know, that was a time when they were making thousands of films yeah. a year. And there was a lot of crap then too. Uh, well, there absolutely was. There was probably more. Yeah. We're not talking about the thousand films that have been forgotten. We've narrowed it down. Because you, so, you didn't have to finance a film in the same way in the 30s as you do. In you to, you the, certainly the do not. <laughs> so uh, the other thing to keep in mind is it's, it's hard to make a movie. Yeah. It is intensely collaborative and complicated, especially when you're making you – know, when you're making a big movie, there's a lot of pressures, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, let's say. So it shouldn't surprise us that many movies come out messy, shall we say. And then it's also harder to make a, a genuinely novel film, right? It's hard to make yeah. the argument that audiences are going to be interested in something that isn't that similar to what they've enjoyed recently. So let me push you to or exert you to be free with your opinions here, <laughs> okay? okay? Um, <laughs> Because you may want to temper it in some way, but don't hold, don't hold back. Okay. Um, you said the films that were nominated or seem to be on track this year to be nominated for the big awards anyway. Yeah. And I think this was the word you used, terrible. Yes. Yes. 
And I have two films top of mind, so we'll get right into it. Great. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon was a terrible misfire. From and Martin Scorsese, from, the great director. From yes. the great Martin Scorsese, <laughs> yes. and I'm happy to substantiate that opinion with erudite comments. <laughs> uh, and the other, the other big one in my mind is is Barbie, which I also thought was was terrible and disturbing in, in some ways. Uh, not only the film itself, but also the phenomenon that built up around it. All right, put a pin in that because I want to come back sure. to because it seems like. Maybe not Killers of the Flower Moon as much as Barbie does, but there were certain films that sort of attained a kind of popular cultural phenomenon yes. status this year. Absolutely. So hold on and we'll come back okay. to that. Let it. me ask you, um, what makes a great year for movies? And maybe that's an, a, an obvious question. Is it the actual number of movies that were really good – or that there are movies, just the fact that there were, um, you know, like, you're not looking at like there were a bunch of really great movies or just it was a year where there were some exceptional movies. Do you, mm. know, do you know what I mean? I do. I do. I mean, this is ultimately subjective. And the, the fun thing about movies is how the movies stay the same, but our opinions of them change over time. We hmm. change, hmm. society changes, and sometimes we make mistakes in the moment. So it's it's fun to have these conversations, but it's also fun to look back and see the movies that we we actually remember. Now, a movie year can be great for any number of reasons. I mean, a movie year can be great just because you had a good time at the cinema. Yeah. So I, when I have this conversation with just regular moviegoers, I ask them, well, what you know, what do you remember from the movies this year? What movies do you remember seeing? And oftentimes they don't remember that many. Hmm. So if you can remember really two or three or four or more movies that you went to and you enjoyed, that's a good year at the movies. You know, even if you can remember some moments from otherwise, uh, say, mediocre films, that's also a great moment. And I, I think those measures are, are fine. So whether it's just we had a quantity of really great movies or a small number of, of excellent ones, any of those could make a great year in cinema. You know, sometimes I wonder if when I'm thinking about just the conversation I'm going to have with you, like I'm, as I'm preparing for all of this. And, and I listen to um, and read uh, plenty of sort of critics and um, I'm interested in, you know, podcasts about popular culture, those kinds of things. But I wonder – and I'm not talking about, quote unquote, the masses necessarily. But how do you think about – when you're assessing the you know the the year in in film there are the kind of elite critics i guess or the mm. critics that think about this in a way that most of us just don't mm -hmm. compared to the people who they're smart people they're discerning you know and and they go to movies i mean there's it seems like there's a difference between those how do you sort of yeah. think about that that balance the the really you know, um, super into it movie crowd and the ones that just, what are we going to do this weekend? Oh, there's yeah. something at the multiplex. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? I do. And what you're I talking I keep saying about, that. Do you know what I mean? But I, <laughs> no, I, I think there's a question. I do that. understand it. <laughs> I think, I think most people recognize what you're getting at. And one way of framing it would be a difference between a kind of professional critic yeah. and, and an amateur. And, you know, amateur has a negative connotation, but, you know, the, 
the root of the word amateur is actually the word love. Hmm. So there's nothing wrong with being an amateur. So make sure that that's very clear. You know, if you are you know, a professional film critic or somebody who is willing to devote a significant amount of time to watching movies and then, and then talking about them or writing about them, that's like any set of skills. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have a wider base of knowledge. The background that you draw upon to make judgments is going to be different. And then you're also practicing making arguments about the relative worth of different pieces of art. That is not the way most moviegoers <laughs> operate. Right? It is that it's that conversation. You know, what am I? What's worth the eight dollars this weekend? Do we want to go out? Do we want to go to the movies? Do we want to go do something else instead? Um, we're we're talking about very different groups of people. Now, at the box office, they're all counted the same, yeah, of, course. of course. And professional critics maybe have an outsized influence over things like awards, but increasingly they don't have much influence over uh, box office. I mean, we've always seen a a diversion, let's say, or a disconnect between the opinions of critics in some cases and the opinions of audiences. And that gulf seems to be widening a little bit more. I mean, it's often a topic of conversation when the the critics score, for example, on Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. which you know is itself a controversial measure of yeah. the film's goodness, freshness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, we can have moments where it seems like the vast majority of critics don't like a movie and then audiences are able to weigh in. Now, can you game those? Sure. But it's, it's interesting because it speaks to something that's probably always been there. Right? There's always going to be this, this difference of opinion. But that's what makes movies interesting, that they evoke a, a personal response. And that's, that personal response can be based on your, you know, your, your profession, the number of films you see, your interests. I mean, that's what makes movies so wonderful is that we can have a personal relationship with them because we, we are unique individuals. And so what mm-hmm. we bring to the movie is going to be different. And that is just as valuable if you're an earnest amateur as, it, as somebody who watches a thousand films a year because it's their job. And has to write about them. And has to write it well. Turning an opinion around. I mean, this is the, the thing about a professional critic is often you have often you have just hours yeah. after seeing a movie to to make a pronouncement. Basically, yes, yeah, and you know maybe that pronouncement will hold up, maybe it won't. I mean, we have the option of revisiting our opinions, but it's a quick turnaround. Yeah, you know, whereas history takes longer to judge film. So you know, I as a historian often don't have to do what we're doing today, where I make these pronouncements. I try to get, do it with the perspective of a historian, but. You know, I'm not going to have anybody hold it to me. Well, I welcome mean emails, uh, people who I upset today. But, you know, I, I will get to revise these over time. Let me ask about money. Um, okay. You mentioned box office. It wasn't a great year for films of, of certain quality, it seems, from your perspective. How about the box office? Did movies make money in 2023? Well, movies <laughs> – in a way, movies always find a way to make money. Huh. Right. There's different ways to recoup your costs. But what was notable this year is that a large number of very expensive movies did not do well, either critically or financially. Uh, this is the year when the bottom seems to have dropped off on dropped out on the superhero film, mm-hmm. for example, a- along with maybe other related you know, franchise type films. Indiana Jones would be a good example. Yeah. Even Mission Impossible did not do as well as uh, it, it was hoped. So that that is you know that story is out there, and that's a legitimate story for this year in movies. Andrew Nelson, he's chair of the film and media arts department at the University of Utah. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. 
so let's talk about this sort of the the popular cultural moment that was Barbenheimer in the <laughs> okay. summer. Yes. Um, what was going on there, first of all, before we talk about what you think about those two films? And let's mm-hmm. – because I do want to get your sense of that. You know, Greta Gerwig on one hand, you have Christopher Nolan on the other. Yeah. But the, it's, it seems like those two films appeared – at a moment, I mean, there was this contention about the strikes that were going on among writers and among actors. Um, there was a sense that um, there was a kind of a, a, a sort of a Me Too moment that played into one of these. There was – I don't know. Like what, what do you make of that as, as just as a kind of a moment in culture? Yeah. I mean it's certainly interesting in this day and age to see – two movies of that size, so that scale, that importance, yeah. uh, open against one another. It usually doesn't happen. You know, normally there's a lot of strategy around this. And there is such a thing as counter-programming, the idea that you'll try to open usually a smaller film mm. that provides an alternative for folks who aren't going to go and see the big film. And as different as Barbie and Oppenheimer were, they still are, are more or less in the same lane. These mm. are sort of big blockbuster important films, even though one is a comedy and one is a drama, the rhetoric around them was, you know, these are important movies. Like, you know, Barbie has a, you know, a, a political subtext that is going to really resonate with people. Oppenheimer, although it tells a historical story, is one that's relevant in this particular moment. So that, you know, that was unusual. And it was interesting to see how the you know, movie-going public responded by, you know, creating this thing, mm-hmm. Barbenheimer, the idea that, you know, you would see both, um, that, you, you know, you would go and see Oppenheimer and you would be serious and then you'd go and see Barbie and you would be jubilant. And you were and, expected to love both of them, do you yeah, think? I, that is – that was the expectation. I mean, I think, you know, Barbie was much more overt in this respect. Yeah. You know, it quite cleverly promoted itself as the movie for people who both loved and hated Barbie. So I guess it's the movie for everybody. And then, you know, with Oppenheimer, I, I think there was – a little more latitude to say that it was a bad film, and some people did. I mean, Nolan is you know coming off of a, a, what we might call a flop in Tenet, you know, yeah. released during the pandemic, and he's, this is him going back to a kind of Dunkirk mode of historical mm-hmm. uh, storytelling that he, you know he seems to be alternating that with his more you know science fiction genre pictures now. So I think there was a little more room around Oppenheimer. It's also a different type of film; it's much longer. Yeah. You, know, you can't, not as many people can see it. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it it was a prestigious film made by one of our greatest filmmakers, and it got great reviews. So I I think that yeah, this is an interesting moment where you could see both, and it was actually okay to like both. You didn't need to pick sides at this particular moment. So um, let's talk about Barbie for a moment, because it seems like one of the things that you've said is that it seems like anyway to you that we've reached this turning point in mainstream movies where audiences have kind of had enough of films that are trying to extol a social or a political message and they just want kind of good storytelling. Now, this is the part where you're going to get the the nasty emails, but <laughs> you, you just flat out did not like Barbie and you think no. maybe it falls into that category. I do. I, I think – Barbie is actually more like the superhero films that many people saw it as a as almost an antidote to. It is, uh, you know, it's a juvenile film based on a popular piece of existing intellectual property mm-hmm. that tells a infantilizing story where we watch adults 
go through the, you know, the the milestones of children, essentially. So how how is that different than a superhero film? It, it's not especially different. I mean, Barbie was when I saw it, I, I thought it was confused in the way that a lot of big movies are. As I said before, you know, lots of cooks in the kitchen, so you can sense the, the competing pressures between. The desire to empower someone like a Greta Gerwig to bring her you know, really distinct sensibility to a much larger audience on a bigger canvas with more money. But at the same time, you can feel the, the corporate interest coming in. You know, We've all had this feeling when we watch a Marvel movie, say. Mm. So they'll bring in somebody like a Chloe Zhao or the Russos you know, who have indie mm. cred. And you'll feel it in the first – third, maybe two-thirds of the movie, but then at a certain point, it's as though that the corporate overlords have come in and said, okay, well, we'll take it from here, kid. And you yeah. get a special effects uh, kind of bonanza. And Barbie wasn't that different to me. It's, it certainly has some clever moments, but it was so superficial and kind of duplicitous, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this was a movie that wanted to have it so many different ways. Uh, I think that it is... You know, it's disturbing to me that in 2023, a woman's ability to manipulate men is seen as her greatest attribute. I, in 2023, I think it's disturbing when a, a, a movie's key triumph is stealing an election, which is really strange to me mm-hmm. without any kind of – it's not that's not satire in this movie. And then I was also a little taken aback by – the participatory culture that built up around the film that was encouraged by the studio. Now, we, of course, live in a cosplay moment where, you know, adults dress up in costumes uh, much more than they might have, and they do it in public ways. So we understand that's part of it. But I was disturbed by just the sheer number of people who, especially women, who are dressing up with pink in pink to go and see this movie. And in many theaters, and most people who have seen this online, you could actually – put yourself into a, a life-sized box, a, a piece of packaging. So you're encouraged to dress up like a doll and then literally put yourself into the box. And, and the, part of the movie is, of course, about not going into the box. But lots of people were willing to go into the box, take pictures of themselves, like commodifying themselves, and then willingly putting that on social media for the benefit of this corporate entity. I mean, you know, I am – you know. There's a, a very easy, let's say, almost Marxist reading of this film to say that this is, this is how pernicious capitalism operates. It makes you think like you're being empowered and fighting the system, but in doing so, you're actually ceding all of your agency and conforming to the very structures that you think you're pushing back against. Uh, that would be one perspective, let's say. I, I think that w- if you get emails about this, <laughs> get, you, uh, someone may say, well, look, I'm listening to two dudes talk about movies sure. and one man is overthinking the idea that it's just my way of kind of asserting the idea of empowerment. And it was fun and it made me feel Andrew Nelson, you're overthinking it. How sure. do you? How would you respond to that if yeah. you got that kind of? Yeah, resume? maybe so, and it wouldn't. It wouldn't be worth fighting about. Yeah, but you know, it's it's my job in some ways to think seriously about film. I mean, I'm supposed to take these things seriously. So when I see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of young women dressing up like dolls, putting themselves in boxes and commodifying themselves on social media, I need to at least say that that doesn't that doesn't seem 
good to me. This doesn't seem like a great development. It doesn't seem like the type of empowerment that we seem to be advocating. It, it almost seems at odds with the film mm-hmm. that suggests that, at least in the early parts of the film, that Barbary was, was, was indeed a kind of emancipatory doll, that Barbie could be anything and that told girls that they could be anything. You know, I, I think that's true. I, I believe in the agency of the consumer, the moviegoer, to read something into a product, into a movie. I mean, that's perfectly reasonable. Indeed, the strength of American moviegoing is, is often it's kind of apolitical nature, the idea that people of vastly different political persuasions, ideological backgrounds could go into the same movie and still come out saying, yeah, that movie's for me. I think that's actually the norm in American movie history. So I think that's certainly the case. But then the movie kind of criticizes that. Hmm. suggests that, no, that that wasn't right, that Barbie was still some kind of oppressive tool of a group of male executives, which is, of course, not the way Mattel actually operates or has operated for for a long time. So I, there's just too much in there that um, gave me pause, let's say. And then when I, when I have that reaction, then I, I see that I'm in the minority. I, I guess in, in this opportunity, feel compelled to speak up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the two dudes. I mean uh, – that's a that's a fair question. I mean, I think people just have to listen to my argument. I, I mean, one thing I might say there is there were other films this year that actually succeeded at doing what Barbie didn't. Um, the adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is one of my favorite films of this year. It is an exceptional film. It is a studio film. It is a film that is actually about adolescent girls going through these, you know, the negotiating group dynamics, going through, you know, changes, biological changes, having to figure all of that out, dealing with parents who are actually fully fleshed out characters who, who demonstrate that they are also able to learn and grow as adults and not as children. I mean, that was a, a masterful film that genuinely is feminist, I think, in the way that Barbie is not. Okay, so while we're talking about the films that worked, before we get to kind of more specific films, hmm. um, what did work? And, and, and maybe it's not fair to say, oh, certain themes worked or certain sure. genres worked. But it seems like you do think a certain genre did work. Horror, I right? do. I think 2023 was a great year for horror. Uh, there were some bad films. Uh, there always are. Exorcist Believer being one of the worst films I have seen. Um, oh, man. We talked about The Exorcist. We did a show about The Exorcist. We did. In anticipation of this horrible, horrible movie yes. being released. And it was everything that was wrong with the the new Halloween films plus more. You know, contempt for the audience. Yeah. Complete misunderstanding of what made the other original interesting and appealing. So that was terrible. Yeah. But that aside, it was a, it was a good year for horror. And it, there were other films that did what The Exorcist believer were unable to do. Scream 6 was good. You know, None 2 is okay. Evil Dead Rise, good. Megan, good. Thanksgiving, good. Uh, but to me, the film that stands head and shoulders above the rest, uh, before that head is cut off, I suppose. Brace yourselves, everyone. Saw X. Wow. Saw 10. Saw 10. One of my top films of the year, a film I enjoyed very much and recommend without any hesitation, no reservations to, You're to all listeners. You're not sheepish about this recommendation. Absolutely in any way. not. And I'm, all right, make your case. Sure. Well, I'm a big fan of the Saw franchise, um, and this being the tenth film in a series that was once, you know, described somewhat disparagingly as torture porn, yeah. means that there is a significant hurdle to be overcome for many moviegoers. That's so going know, to be the impulse that most people he- will 
that's going to be their impulse when they hear you yeah, say that, I yeah. think, at first. But anyway. Well, yeah. it's, it's a horror film and a horror is for a, a small but usually enthusiastic audience. So, right. you know, so some folks are never going to see it and I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, Saw X, uh, to me, you know, as I said, achieved what the Exorcist Believer couldn't. It's almost a, a template for how you make a great not only horror movie but horror sequel. Huh. It was inventive and innovative. It was a, a film that was respectful of the lineage while also moving in new directions. It took one of the signature um, thematic or stylistic conceits of the film. The soft films are usually about jumping back and forth in time. So it had some of that but in a, in a new and exciting way. It actually – you know, d- delivered on a twist ending, which is also a signature, but I- in a way that was incredibly satisfying. And it had some great performances. I mean, this was a showcase for Tobin Bell, who, you know, in the first film has just a couple of lines of dialogue and spends the entire film, you know, as what we think what we think to be a dead body on the floor. And here, you know, this, this guy, this character actor, 80-year-old man, gives one of the most, you know, moving, sensitive, but also – I disquieting performances of the year it is it's just a a great movie whether you're a horror fan or or, you know even if you're not i I think there's an interesting message in this movie that if you can you know get over the specter of buckets of blood yeah uh you're going to enjoy so let's talk about um i think another selection of some of one of your favorites and or two of your favorites actually that may, um, I don't know, surprise people, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Maybe those who know you well won't be surprised at all about this. But <laughs> um, this is um, one of the genres that d- didn't, doesn't seem to be working for a lot of people anymore, like superhero films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then comes this year Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, yes. which is getting really good reviews yep. and an incredible response. And... Not just for the storytelling, but also for the the style, the form, the animation mm-hmm. is really interesting. This was one of your favorites, right? It was. I I like this movie a lot. I think that it does, you know, suffer from some of the tendencies of the live action superhero film. I mean, this movie was much too long. Yeah. Uh, it, in ways that you know, are to its detriment in some respects, but you know, still, it is. Head and shoulders above every live-action superhero film that came out, and you know, to me, you know, this film, you know, coupled with another film that I, I really liked, I think I actually liked more, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was the other one I was going to mention. But yeah, okay, yeah, um, which you know is is a film that's clearly in, indebted to uh, into the Spider Verse in terms of its style and approach. Mm-hmm. You know, those to me were two of the the best films of the year and suggests what I think is a path forward for the superhero film that returns it to its graphic roots mm. where you can take advantage of you know the the painterly possibilities of the medium uh, while at the same time grounding it as a story for children right that there isn't the kind of pretense that we need to you know blow this up that people are dealing with adult angst these are actually about child protagonists, teenagers dealing with you know, genuine you know, angst and issues, which are amplified by the fact that they also have to be superheroes. And you're saying that the previous ones, over the, over the course of the last several years, they just kind of lost their way. I think so. And there's a lot of things we could say about that. I mean, there's just, there's just so many of them. 
Yeah. I mean, we, we probably have reached a saturation point, and that has a number of effects. Because there are so many of them, the films often don't look very good yeah. anymore. You know, I, I have this experience with my students that I can show them superhero films from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and the effects can look better than a film that was released last week. Even though the technology is yeah. supposed to be more evolved. It, it is, but you, know, you still need people. You still need artists yeah. to do this. And they it's, only have so much time. They do, and there's been a lot – uh, a lot of pieces in the press about how overworked um, uh, uh, effects artists have been. You know, not only in superhero films, but there you know other amusing stories over the past few years. The Cats adaptation, for example, is one right. that uh, uh, you know listeners should look up just to hear the ridiculous stories, the demands that were made on those effects uh, effects folks. So, so I, th- I think that's part of it. I, I, I think saturation just has caused a certain amount of fatigue. You know, there, there's the idea that these films don't stand alone, that you need to have seen all the other films because they're going to connect in a particular way and you also need to see all the shows that are on streaming. I think that it, it places an increasing burden on audiences that just isn't worth it hmm. anymore. So there's, there's certainly a path forward. I think there were some interesting superhero films. Uh, I like Blue Beetle, uh, which hmm. you know, didn't do very well. Probably yeah. it was a victim of some of this other success. Um, but there's, you know, there, there's just a, as I said before, it seems like the bottom has dropped out, but there is a path forward. Um, you know, I can't help but think of Into the Spider Verse in relationship to uh, The Flash, which was a big superhero film that failed. Yeah. You know, t- attempting to wring every ounce of nostalgia that it possibly could yeah. out, out of the genre. So, you know, without giving anything away, you know, The Flash is a very conventional superhero film that says that there is something – there is such a thing as fate, destiny, and part of being a mature person is learning to accept that, that there are some things you just can't change and you need to learn to deal with that trauma and move on. Right? That's most superhero films, you know. Parents dead, too bad. you got to accept that yeah. and that's what made you who you are. We've heard that. Many times. Many times. So then you have Across the Spider-Verse. This is a film that has its adolescent protagonist say, no, I, you know, the adults are telling me I need to accept this, that people close to me have to die, not only for, you know, for, for my narrative to unfold in the predetermined fashion, but also you know, the, the fate of the entire universe, the, a multiverse of universes is at stake. And he says no. Now, I'll be interested to see how that storyline is resolved. But it's hard not to see those two in stark contrast to one another. I mean, even you know, Ninja Turtles you know, has the most amazing, uplifting, and unexpected ending. And I don't want to spoil it for folks, but it, it suggests that you know, outsiders can, in fact, be integrated into and accepted by the larger society, which is completely at odds with this idea that superheroes must remain apart from yeah. society and you know, wounded outsiders, and they need to they need to maintain secrecy to protect those close to them. So we have these two very you know, s- stark arguments for a different type of superhero film that takes it back to its roots. Uh, I'm genuinely excited about those types of developments. Uh, and so if you know, audiences haven't seen either of those films, I, I recommend them both. That's the film historian Andrew Nelson. He's an associate professor at the University of Utah. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. I want to ask you about a director that we've already talked about, spent 
an entire show talking about, and that's the work of Wes Anderson. Sure. Asteroid City. Yes. Came out in 2023. Um, what did you think? Well. A little disappointed. A little disappointed. I think you have to take the good with the bad. <laughs> I, I, stylistically, I, I found it very interesting for yeah. him to take his, you know, his distinct sensibility into this kind of desolate Southwest setting. I mean, it's not as though he hasn't made films set in the past before, but it you know sort of captured the the essence of a particular era in a in a very interesting way. It's like he's going home to New Mexico, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So I I really enjoyed it. Some you know some two very good performances. I thought Scarlett Johansson was excellent. I think she's uniformly excellent. Yeah. She's just a great actress. Jake Gyllenhaal was very good. You know they they were able to do something with the kind of understated roles that they were given. But, you know, it's a Wes Anderson film, so, you know, kind of mucks it up with some flashbacks and some extra diegetic material. It isn't quite clear why we're doing this. So in this case, you know, it's not a book, which has been a conceit that he has used in mm-hmm. many of his films. Now this is some kind of play or quasi-play. Mm-hmm. It's a film within a film. It's a play within a film, a film within a play. Fine. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, in, in those respects, it seems like the work of somebody who, you know, is is trying to innovate within the framework that they've already been – they've elaborated and that they're known for. So there's lots lots to liken it. Some some very, very funny moments around, around UFOs in particular. Some great performances. All of the kids in the movie are also very, um, very delightful. But as as is sometimes the case with Anderson, especially more recently, there are you know, some touches that at least didn't work for me. So I'm going to go through a list of movies. Okay. You st- we don't have to talk about all of these. But all as right. I'm sort of assessing the landscape of okay. critics who say these were my best. Okay. Um, and you don't have to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. But sort of stop me when you want to say something about one of these. Okay. Um, we'll get to Scorsese in a minute. Okay. So that's not we'll on the list on yet. All right. Um, the Fablemans, Steven Spielberg. Uh, the Killer, David Fincher. Uh, mm. Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. Yeah, I'm going to pass on all those three. Okay. Um, Maestro, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, so haven't seen it yet. Okay. And, and maybe there I'll make the point that you know one one thing that you know even I don't have the advantage of is when we're we're talking about best films of the year. It often seems like at least half of those films are released in the last two weeks of December. For sure. So there are going to be some That's films right. that even I have not seen at this point. Excited to see Maestro, but uh, I haven't seen it yet. Did you see Tar, Todd Field? I did see Tar, yeah, last year. Okay, and? Great performance. Uh, li- not li- a great film, great performance. I would say that's a fair, fair characterization. Yeah. Um, the Holdovers, Anthony Payne, May, December, Todd Haynes. I haven't seen that yet. Seen The Holdovers. It was, you know, Paul Giamatti was, was excellent as he usually is. I don't know how to pronounce this one, but there's a new Frederick Wiseman film, which I think is um, – it's about a French restaurant, Menu Placer Les Trois Gros. I will just <laughs> okay. try that. Yeah. Seen that yet? Not yet. No. Um, it's a commitment. Is he's it? 93 and he's still putting this stuff out. But I'm seeing um, this on a lot of people's lists. Interesting. Well, there's – I think there's a great track record now with a few exceptions of you know these very old filmmakers in their 70s, 80s, 90s still doing you know, interesting vital work, yeah. which is exciting to see. Yeah, it really is. Um, Past Lives comes up a lot. Celine Song's. Um, film Anatomy of a Fall, Justine Triet, 
Um, the zone of interest I'm seeing on some people's Jonathan Glazer. Yeah, haven't seen that yet, but I have read some, you know, really actually I would say powerful yeah. reviews of the film, which is kind of unusual. So if if those are any indication, you know, it's going to be a terrifying film, but terrifying because of what you as an audience member imagine. At least that's the that's the setup. So it's I'm people living their lives on the basically the border of Auschwitz. Exactly. Right. Um, Ferrari, Michael Mann. Good film. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Poor Things. Haven't seen it yet. Haven't seen it yet. People are excited about this Frankenstein take. Haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'll just mention uh, Showing Up, Kelly uh, Richards. Richards, yeah. uh, Richards. uh, um, Passages is coming up. Ira Sachs, Earth Mama, Savannah Leaf, Theater Camp, Molly Gordon. Funny film. Enjoyed it. I mean, having, having spent... You know, a lot of time uh, teaching in fine arts departments at universities. I, I was not. I was not a theater kid. I did you not weren't. go to theater okay. camp. Oh, I no. was. You, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, just, that surprises <laughs> me, Doug. It surprises me, Doug. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I I liked it. What do, so? What did you think? I haven't seen it yet. Oh no. Oh yeah. No. I, I'm throwing some of these out that I haven't. Yeah, I would seen yet, love so. to hear your take on okay, it. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll 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 check back in. Yeah. Okay. My colleagues in theater really liked it. Oh, good. Okay. So I'm guessing I probably will. All right. Let's talk about Killers of the Flower moon okay <laughs> um just a, a terrible misfire hmm. uh, and i'm a little bit perplexed at some of the response to it which uh, do you generally appreciate like love scorsese's films so i i think scorsese is one of the greatest film artists of all time okay but i also feel like of, of late he has begun to lose his touch i i thought this with the wolf of wall street i thought this with the irishman and I felt it very keenly at this point. And I, I think there are some commonalities between these three films. Once upon a time, you know, Scorsese was not only very interested in despicable individuals, but he was interested in you know, the social pressures that shaped horrible men, hmm. you know, like a, a Travis Bickle. You know, sure. Why, why are these people the way they are? And he used to be really interested in that and, and offering us some kind of insight into, you know, the depravity of society in, in some ways. But when I watch these more recent films and Killers of the Flower Moon especially, I, I see a, a filmmaker who's now simply content to wallow in the presence of grotesque one-dimensional villains. And i don't find that very interesting. And in the case of a film like this, which is so topical in many ways, you know, is trying to do something, trying to do some historical work, I think that it's a, a tremendous missed opportunity. Another one of those uh, films that was on your list, yeah. and I didn't see it on a lot of lists, I'll say, but it no. was, a, a lot of people loved it, was Air, Ben yeah. Affleck's film. I mean, is it an exceptional film? No. Was it a good film? Yes. Great performances. You know, it takes you – know, Matt Damon was terrific. Oh, was he ever. I mean, he was great. You know, Ben Affleck was very amusing as Phil Knight. I mean, it was just it's just a fun ensemble movie about, you know, what I think is increasingly a kind of mythologized moment in history. Yeah. You know, we're at a time when, you know, Jordan – Michael Jordan occupies, I guess we would say, rarefied air when, when thinking about sports figures, you know. Um, and there's a, a culture that's been built up around sneakers and Air Jordans in particular. This was the first big contract. Absolutely. You know, I, I own I own a pair of Jordans. My son and I, <laughs> my son has Jordans. So I'm, I'm again, maybe a little bit 
overly invested in this because I remember this moment in history. But it was, you know, it was it was a well-made film and a, and a clever one that made a film about Michael Jordan without having Michael Jordan be a character in the movie. All right. I think we've talked about a lot. You're going to you you know you've pissed a few people off and some people are going to be I'm right with you and that's probably exactly where you want to be. That's the amazing thing about movies. I mean <laughs> yeah, we, we it really is. You're I say this all the time that your kind of gut reaction to a movie is perfectly valid. Yeah. And that is a great place to begin thinking about films seriously by taking a second and thinking okay well this movie made me think or feel this way. And then the next step is to ask yourself just, you know, why is that? Yeah. And that begins a conversation. And I love having those conversations. Isn't that a great thing when you when you come out of a film and then part of your evening was to go to dinner and you talk this out oh, with people. And somebody loved it. And you like, what did you love about the thing? And I thought that was the yeah. worst thing I've ever seen. And you get into this big conversation. Oh, absolutely. And, and these are often your friends. You know, people yeah. you choose to For spend sure. time with because you think, <laughs> oh, yes, they believe the things that I believe. Right. These people are like me. You know, that's the amazing thing about film, I guess, art in general is it can, you know, it brings out those differences in yeah. us. And that's amazing. All right. So let me ask finally. Please. Um, what are you expecting in 2024? Like is there, is there a particular film or films that you're, you're, you have your eye on for that? Are you seeing something that, has, that, that started to change in 2023 that may evolve further and develop in 2024? What are you looking at right now? Well, the superhero film is something I'm, I'm very interested in. Huh? Um, you know, you and I have talked before how I, I don't think the superhero film is the contemporary equivalent of the Western. But more generally, I am interested in genres and you know the, the life cycles of genres and how they change and evolve, which isn't a set way. I'm just you know, interested in what happens when a genre reaches a kind of point of saturation in popular mm-hmm. culture and how does it respond. Now, I don't think we're going to see that for a few years because there are you know, so many films that are almost completed, so many that are in the works, so many, um, so many that are, are just going to trickle out over the next year. Bob Iger's talked about mm-hmm. you know, slowing down a little bit, taking the foot off the gas, but that'll take a few years to play out. I will be excited to see if there is a greater appetite for you know, animated superhero films. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think it's difficult to understate how influential Into the Spider-Verse has been. Uh, even stylistically, you know, you look at a film like the most recent Puss in Boots animated film, which was also very good, The very Last good. Wish, you know, <laughs> it is, is, is adopting that more, you know, painterly sort of graphic style. Yeah. So I, I'm excited about that stylistically, but it's exciting to see that paired with the acknowledgement that maybe that facilitates a different type of storytelling. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about that. You know, I, I mean, every year there's some conversation about you know, original content. Is this the year for original films? And sometimes, you know, this has been brought up with Killers of the Flower Moon or Oppenheimer or even, you know, Barbie, just because they aren't based on superhero properties. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, you know, Oppenheimer is based on a book, well-known historical incidents, arguably the most famous filmmaker in the world right now. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, based on a book, very popular book, yeah. famous director, Barbie, based on arguably the most famous toy of all time. So I, I don't think that a film necessarily needs to be you know, original to make it good. And I think we should be skeptical of, of thinking, oh, well, these films are not film X, and therefore they're going to be have a chance at being better, something along those lines. Andrew Nelson, thank you very much. My pleasure. See you at the movies. 
Sandra Nelson. He's chair of the Film and Media Arts Department at the University of Utah, author of the book Still in the Saddle, the Hollywood Western, 1969 to 1980. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.